Hello, everyone. This is Colleen Francis, President and Founder of Engage Selling Solutions, and it is my great pleasure today to have you listening to an interview with one of my favorite people in the whole world, Dr. Alan Weiss. Now, what can I say about Alan? Um, Alan is one of those rare people who can honestly say he's a consultant, speaker, and author, and really mean it. His consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, has attracted amazing clients such as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, State Street Corporation, Times Mirror Group, the Federal Reserve, the New York Times Corporation, Toyota, and over 500 other leading organizations. He served on the boards of directors of the Trinity Repertory Company, a Tony Award-winning New England Regional Theater, Festival Ballet, and has chaired the Newport International Film Festival. So an incredibly diverse and well-rounded portfolio of success. And I can honestly say that I believe he is the greatest business coach, business advisor, mentor to solo entrepreneurs and consultants in the world and has made amazing difference to our business here. So welcome, Alan. Well, thank you, Colleen. I think I would just like to listen to you now because that was wonderful. <laughs> well, you know, the reason that we're on this call is because you have been prolific in publishing books um, and articles. I, you know, you must be close to about 60 books right now, right? 64, but who's counting? Okay, 64, and your most recent book is called Million Dollar Maverick, which I love the title. Now, one thing I noticed um, is that your books and articles have been on the curriculum for all sorts of universities, including the national champions Villanova. And I got to thinking <laughs> about this the other day because the player who shot that winning three-point um, shot right at the buzzer, buzzer to win that game is actually a maverick himself. He was turned down by all the schools that he really wanted to play with because he was too big, too slow, not tall enough, yet his coach put him in, and look at what happened. What a maverick team. <laughs> well, you're exactly right, and as much as I like to take credit for the Villanova win, though I can't, I, I think you're – your depiction of this guy is exactly right because a maverick is somebody who, when the pressure is on, wants the ball. And whether it's athletics or it's business or it's entertainment, whatever it is, the maverick wants the ball, wants to make the difference. And, man, that's what he did just at the buzzer. He did. You know, I was reading a report, you, and you can actually see him standing there shouting at the guy who had the ball saying, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open, and they turned around and changed the play, and there you have it. <laughs> yes. That's such a maverick move. So, well, it is. you know, what I would really like to understand um, in the writing of this book, uh, Million Dollar Maverick, w how you define a maverick in business. Well, maverick came from a guy in Texas who was an engineer who refused to brand his cattle like everybody else did. And his name was Maverick. The guy's name was Maverick. And so his cattle, unbranded, became known as Mavericks. Oh. And the term originated there. Uh, but uh, a maverick today really is somebody who sets himself apart. They don't go by convention. They're not in the mainstream. And they aggressively and deliberately see themselves. It's not a posturing. They see themselves as someone different. And the better they get at that, the stronger they get at that, and the more they become the maverick. And the thing about mavericks is you can't become them, but you can emulate what they do and improve yourself. So that's interesting to me. You can't become a maverick, but you can emulate a maverick. So tell me a little bit more about you, that. Well, you can't become that maverick. You know, every, by definition, a maverick is individual and singular. 
you can become your own maverick, but you can't say, well, I'm going to be this person or that person or that person. I'm going to be me, but I'm going to become a maverick. And mavericks are people who make up their own minds despite conventional wisdom, which is seldom conventional and seldom wisdom. You know, otherwise it's great. Uh, they get out of the mainstream. They don't allow themselves to become a, um, uh, subordinated to normative pressure. They don't allow peer pressure to drive what they do. And they don't try to do what other people have done better. They try to do different things that nobody else is doing. So, you know, when you were so kind to me just now, uh, in the early 90s, I pioneered value-based pricing for consultants. Uh, everybody else was talking about how to charge more by the hour. That's a maverick move. Absolutely. So why should we care about being a maverick? Or what kind of results can it produce for people? Well, those are two different questions. I'm tempted to answer the first one by saying, because life is short. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, yesterday um, I was doing uh, some work in Boston with a group of 40 people. And we had a beautiful view across uh, the harbor of downtown Boston. And there were all these office buildings, which you see in any downtown setting. And I said to them, what are those? And they said, well, they're buildings, you know, they're architectural forms. I said, no, they're prisons. Uh, the people in there are good people, and they're working away for 30 years at insurance underwriting or whatever it is, uh, but they're prisons. Uh, there is no freedom. And so the reason you want to be a maverick is within your lifetime, you want to do things that aren't dictated by others. And you've heard me say that wealth is really discretionary time. The only people who have real discretionary time who don't have inherited family money are mavericks, people who, who seek their own way. You know, one of the things the book points out is that you're better to be a lone wolf than a lone calf. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but, you know, thinking about the corporate environment, there's always going to be people who need to work for corporations or don't want to go out on their own. Uh, you know, my clients are salespeople largely who work for big organizations. Is it possible to be a maverick and be a success or lead a successful life in a corporation? Depends on the corporation. You could probably do it in a company like Zappos or a company like Apple. Uh, there are organizations like that, depending upon the leadership, where you can get away with it. So you have the combination of your colleagues and some sort of corporate stability and security, and you can get away with these things. Uh, and some organizations have fostered that. For example, a 3M, you know, a, a tens of, billion of do, a billions of dollar company, um, at one time was giving their bench scientists 25% of their time to do whatever they wanted. If they work 75% during a 40-hour week on the company's goals for 25% on company premises, they could try to invent anti-gravity machines for all 3M cared. And so they encouraged the Maverick in their midst. In their, yeah, in their midst. So uh, uh, I like that. Um, but I, I think that in most organizations, you know, 90% of organizations, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult because organizations have the wrong metrics. You know, you, you, uh, you proceed according to the way your boss succeeded. The reason that law firms, for example, have these silly, elongated practices of becoming a partner, and if you don't get yeah. on a partner track in five years, you have to leave, is that that's how the top people got there, and they're not about to surrender a system which they had to work through. And look how terrible the medical system is. Yeah. People work for days without sleep because that's what the, the other doctors did. I was recently talking to a friend who's a lawyer, and he's gone from junior associate to associate to senior associate, and then I think he'll probably become, you know, an acting senior associate and then a junior senior associate, <laughs> you know, but he's on the partner track, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And, they're, and they're billing $600 an hour, and maybe someday, you know, he'll make uh, 300000 a year. Yeah. Who, who knows? But, I mean, to me, that's no life. Yes. 
So salespeople are often considered mavericks inside organizations, and I know I have seen salespeople who do buck the trend or are maybe a little bit nonconformist um, compared to uh, company norms, and they're allowed to get away with it because they're exceptional um, performers. Is there a place for maverick salespeople inside corporations? I think there is. I think that, um, you know, the closest interface with the customer, you know, Drucker said that the point of a corporation is to have a customer. The closest interface with the customer is the salesperson. The, um, let's look at the pro and con. The pro is that the salesperson can help not only identify customer need, but can create customer need. The, the con is that if the organizational environment isn't right, that maverick salesperson is talking to people who are functionally deaf. Uh, the R&D people say we can't create that. The operations people say it's not pragmatic. The financial people say we'll never make money on it. Uh, and so uh, they're beaten down, beaten down, beaten down. So what happens? The salesperson either becomes uh, one of the great, um, you know, unwashed or leaves to find a place more conducive to the kinds of talents that she or he has. Yes. So those kinds of confines actually become a pinch point in the organization for, uh, you know, the creativity or the, the maverick nature of that salesperson. Yes, and I mean, the point you're making here is a good one, and that is, from my perspective, that you can be a maverick in the corporate world if the corporation you're in uh, has an environment that supports people being a maverick. Uh, you know, you don't want a maverick accountant who, who cooks the books. Uh, you don't want a maverick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what a maverick architect who builds a building that uh, you know is, is is heavier in the wrong place than it should be. But, well, I was uh, assuming we were talking about legal, moral, and ethical mavericks. <laughs> okay, fine. That, that restricts my comments. Then. But, uh, I mean, you've worked with salespeople for all of your career, and I've yeah. worked with salespeople for a great deal of my career, and um, I've seen a lot of frustrated salespeople, and they're not frustrated because they don't have the talent. They're frustrated because people don't understand the true mavericks among them who can make a real difference. Yeah. You know, I read something in your book that I thought was um, very much uh, tailored or could be tailored to salespeople, and you, you wrote, they do not, contrary to conventional wisdom, chase money. They attract money. Um, mostly they think differently, act decisively, and um, are, they succeed quickly, which to me is a really great definition of a top salespeople. But I'd like to talk about the difference between chasing money and attracting money, which you talk about in the book. What, uh, what do you mean? First of all, define the difference between those two things for us. Well, chasing money is a, is a salesperson who has a quota and will do anything to meet that quota or beat the quota. And they're reacting to their bonus, and they're reacting to their boss who has some kind of large gun pointed at the back of their head. Uh, and they feel that they'll survive and they'll thrive if they simply bring in the money they have to. Now, technically, they're right. But the other way, attracting, is like this. Uh, I have, as you know, I drive expensive cars. You know, I drive Bentleys and, and, and Vets and so forth. And you know, I have a, a, a salesperson who anticipates my needs and who I will go to for advice. So when I am involved in helping the salesperson to make a sale, that's a no-brainer. And I am loyal to him because I know he always has my best interest in mind, and I can trust it. So if he says, this is the car you need, it's $100,000 more than the last one, but here's why you need it, I don't sit down with a sharp pencil and get an accountant and go over it. I say, order it. And in, no matter what kind of sales you're involved in, you want a customer base that looks to you as a reliable source. And when I was doing a lot of OD work for those very excellent companies you, may, you named before, 
I would have buyers call me and say, Alan, we're thinking of doing this. Is this something you want to work on with us? And it was my choice. They had already presupposed if I was willing to do it, I was the guy. That's the salesperson who attracts business. So these are salespeople and buyers who think of themselves as peers, not superior and inferior sales rep and, um, and vendor, but really um, peers of each other where they respect each other's opinions. Yes, and you have to look at why that is. And the why is the salesperson is seen as an unequivocal expert, not as a salesperson, not as a representative of his or her company. They're seen as an expert, and that expertise would exist with them no matter where they were. So despite the fact you might be getting a paycheck from the Acme Corporation, I see you as an expert who's going to help me with electronic equipment or help me with my travel plans or help me buy a house or help me buy a vehicle or whatever it is. And it's the, that vested expertise that creates that peer relationship. Ah, okay. So one other piece on attraction that you talk about is attracting powerful attractors. Is this related to attracting money or is this something different? It's something different. Uh, and I, you know, I stumbled onto this about you know, 15 years ago. So uh, you've been an active member of my community for quite a long time now, and uh, you know, since you were at least 10 or 11 years old, I think. <laughs> I think so. And, uh, and right, and you've attracted a great many people to my community. I mean, right now, uh, this recording, uh, in addition to your use, is going to be used by Lisa Larder, who is a social media strategist, who I only met through you. Is attracted to my community through you, and she in turn is attracting other people to my community. And so what great salespeople do who are mavericks is they rely on their customers to be recruiters of other customers. Uh, they become, the customer becomes the evangelist, and the cost of acquisition disappears, and so the margins increase. And one of the reasons that I wrote this book is when I look back on my life, you know, my wife Maria said, uh, don't, do not write your memoirs. <laughs> it would be self-indulgent. And so I said, okay. Uh, so what? The reason I wrote this book about lessons I learned, you know, as I've, I've gone on this career path, uh, is that one of the greatest lessons I've learned, which I write about extensively in the book, is that if you can attract people who can attract other people, you've just made 20 or 30 or 100 sales at one time because of that domino effect. Yes. So what do you think, and this is applicable to salespeople, you know, business people, and of course entrepreneurs, one of the... the differences between me being a powerful attractor to people in your community um, and just asking for referrals is I made that introduction to Lisa in your example without you asking for it. You didn't come to me and say, hey, Colleen, do you have a social media expert that you can refer me to? I just thought Lisa would be a good fit. How do you create that environment um, in wherever you work where you just attract those referrals naturally? Well, uh, let me ask you a question. Why did you, in all good conscience, why did you refer Lisa to me when I never asked you to do that? Because I knew that she would benefit from your guidance. You just answered your own question. See, most of us have very good intentions with other people. And with people we like and respect, we want to help them. And we want to create win-win-win situations. So the same reason you refer someone to a good trademark attorney or to a great surgeon or to a great designer, uh, it's the exact same thing. We want people we like and respect to be happy and successful, and we expect the reciprocity. We expect they'll do the same for us sometime, maybe not tomorrow, but sometime. And so when you can get people in a frame of mind uh, who are willing to do that for you, you've got this vast, vast network 
of unsolicited referrals, unsolicited help that naturally accrue because of the quality of people around you. And so, as you know, in my community, there's no place else in the world where you can be a member of a community that has this much quality and this much talent in it globally. And so once you're in that, you want to say, well, people I really respect and admire, I'd like them to partake of this too. And it becomes a perpetual motion machine. Ah, okay. That's great advice. One of the things that you you mention about Mavericks is that they ignore most advice. How do you do that and succeed? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> heavy drinking will take care of it. But I'm <laughs> I write a million-dollar maverick uh, 
uh, about the fact that you don't want to learn to ski by taking uh, instructions from a ski instructor who sits in the chalet and tells you what to do when you go up the slope the next day. You want somebody who's going to be about six yards ahead of you going down the hill doing what you want to do. So you're exactly right. You need only to listen to people who have been there and done that. Uh, and everybody else is just a theorist, and most of the theorists are wrong. What, say more about that. Well, if you think, you know, economists are always saying, well, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they don't know. Oh, <laughs> yes. No, nobody, can, nobody can predict the market. Most financial analysts, it, it's like listening to science fiction. Yeah. They don't know what's going on. And, uh, and the same thing in, in our profession. Uh, unless you're talking to someone who is demonstrably successful, by however you term success, it might be money, it might be free time, it might be contributions to philanthropy, whatever it is, but you can see this success that you recognize as success, you listen to them, but, but there are more people giving advice today and consulting than there are good consultants. <laughs> this is true. There are lots of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. So when I asked you why we should, be, why we should consider being mavericks, um, you said uh, because life is short. Um, so why, it sounds to me like you believe that being a maverick is a way to carve out a better life for yourself. Why is that? Well, when you're fortunate enough to live uh, in, um, in a country of liberty and freedom, you know, and whether we're talking about Canada, the United States, you know, or, and other places, you're living in a, in a place that grants you the ability to express yourself. Uh, and um, you have the ability to help people almost without restriction, why on earth would you confine and constrain and restrict your ability to help through some kind of corporate superstructure or orders that someone else gives you? I don't understand that. And, uh, you know, retirement has become an, an artifact. It's no longer a valid meaning. The, the word, except, you know, if you're retiring from the field or retiring from a race, the word really no longer has any kind of... of uh, connotation that makes sense. So consequently, given the fact that no one is going to be here forever, why not live your life and express your talents as much as you can? You know, you and I are probably somewhere about 98% in terms of uh, using our capabilities and helping people and uh, expressing values to others, whereas people who are in a more confined setting are probably somewhere under 50%. And that's what I mean uh, by saying that life is short. Uh, mavericks are able to express themselves at their own behest and at their own will. And that's a huge difference. Makes perfectly good sense to me. So one of the things you also say that mavericks possess or need to possess is critical thinking skills uh, in order to get the inside track to rapid success. So what – I've always been intrigued with what critical thinking skills are. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, critical thinking skills means – that you use objective uh, measures to determine your actions. Now, let's not lose sight of the fact that logic makes people think and emotion makes them act. And the sale of something is basically an emotional act. And so I don't want to lose sight of that. But what I'm talking about is in the decisions that you and I make as we plan our business, as we pursue sales, as we pursue these communities we talked about earlier, uh, critical thinking skills are things like this, knowing the difference between cause and effect knowing the difference between preventing something and adapting to it, uh, knowing the difference uh, between the upside and the downside, uh, knowing that risk involves both probability and seriousness, 
knowing that our priorities depend on three basic elements, and so on and so forth. Uh, instead, too many people tend to reinvent the wheel with each of those, or they jump the cause, or they make silly decisions because they haven't uh, determined what the risk is or what the benefits are. And that goes on every day. So critical thinking skills, once they're internalized, uh, are, uh, are automatic. Uh, like riding a bike, you never forget them, and you can use them in a split second. You don't have to refer to a manual. And so I know immediately if somebody is disagreeing with me about objectives or alternatives, for example, and I know, therefore, which path to take because reconciling a difference in objectives is far different from reconciling a difference in alternatives. I know instantly which way to go. But one thing I do notice about Mavericks is they make decisions very quickly. And people who are highly successful in business make decisions and they act on it. So isn't there a trap with people trying to carve their own way of overthinking by trying to develop these critical thinking skills? It's just the opposite. Uh, when you have the critical thinking skills, they allow you to move quickly, just as you indicated, and so you don't overthink. The last thing you do is overthink. You don't have to. So if I know immediately the difference between cause and effect, I don't have to spend any more time on that. I know I'm dealing with a cause or an effect. If I'm dealing with the effect, I have to reduce the symptom. If I'm dealing with a cause, I want to remove the cause. Something else about Mavericks is, and, and I have a chart in Million Dollar Maverick about this, Mavericks are resilient. And so they're not afraid to make a quick decision because they know if something goes wrong, they can fix it quickly. Other people are not resilient. Non-Mavericks are non-resilient. And consequently, making a mistake can derail them for weeks. What do you mean by that? They're non. What happens when someone's non-resilient? What does that look like? Well, uh, let's suppose that something has happened unexpectedly, and it's a problem. It's a downer. It's a negative. Uh, a, a maverick says, "Well, we have a problem here. Let's see how. Not I can fix this. Let's see how I can deal with this and make it even better." And so, an example in the sales process would be: you have somebody on a um, on a telephone, a call center, and they get a complaint. And instead of just dealing with the complaint, they upsell to something else. And I've seen people do this brilliantly. That's a great technique. Uh, people who are non-resilient, something happens to them and they stop and they whine and they're a victim. And how could this have happened? And then they go seek help and they don't trust their judgment anymore. A maverick says, well, this is fun. Let's see what I can do about this. And that's exactly what happens. So, you know, when you're hit with that kind of um, deterrent, whether you're an entrepreneur working on your own or inside an organization, inside an organization where do you go for support um, to get back on track? In an organization, are you asking me? Yeah. Well, in an organization, it depends how much freedom you have. If you make a mistake in some organizations, you know, you'd have to go hide under a desk. <laughs> what a lot of people do is they try to, they try to blame it on somebody else. Uh, you know, the organizations as a whole, that 90% of organizations I talked about, they don't look for cause, they look for blame. See, that's an example of a critical thinking skill. So are you looking for cause or looking for blame? Most organizations look for blame. They look for scapegoats. The politicians right now uh, <laughs> that are trying to get the nomination are only, looking about, are only talking about blame. They're trying to find scapegoats. Uh, so in, in an organization, it's very difficult. But if you're in a healthy organization, then what happens is people get, their, get together and they say, okay, we have a problem. Not you made a mistake or cut off her head or, you know, uh, you're fired, they say, we have a problem. You know, what does Donald Trump say all the time? You're fired, right? <laughs> we have a problem. So how can we make the best of this? And when I was doing work for Mercedes-Benz, um, I told them, I'm not going to look for external best practices. I'm going to look for internal best practices. We're going to start there. We're going to find your best dealers. And because their service performance was awful at the time. And I found their very best dealer. 
he had a high sales. Uh, people loved them. The, the, the surveys were excellent. And I said to the dealership owner, how do you do this? He said, oh, problems. And I said, what do you mean problems? And he said, you can't run an auto dealership without problems. People come in here and we solve their problems and make them screamingly happy. And, you know, I thought about it. I was just up in Boston, you know. Nobody goes home and says, wow, what a great hotel. They delivered the room service on time. You know, <laughs> nobody says that. Right? They come home and say, you know, they screwed up my room service, but they paid for the night. What a place. I'm going back. And that's what you have to do. You have to understand that when problems arise, you don't just try to patch them up. You try to make it better than ever so you actually have an advantage. So if you are a maverick personality um, inside a corporation and you want to go against the grain, do you think it's possible? I mean, I know it's, it's situational, but are there places that you can go to get organizational support or can you foster that organizational support or is it better to just go out on your own? Well, if I had my druthers, you'd go out on your own. Uh, most people, I think you, you know this personally, but most people who leave organizations don't leave the organization. They leave their boss. Uh, yes. And there's a misconception in terms of attrition and turnover that the organization's environment is at fault. Most people, if you talk to them later, have left their boss. So if a maverick or a potential maverick doesn't have the right kind of boss and supportive environment, not going to happen. When I did my dissertation on innovation, I found that the prevailing factor as to whether an individual would be innovative was, was not their personality traits, which I tried to prove and my dissertation got thrown out and I had to do it over. It wasn't their personality traits, it, and it wasn't their education, and it wasn't the courses they took. It was whether the environment and their direct superiors supported innovation. If they did, they'd be innovative. And the same thing with Mavericks. If your boss supports you, you have a lot more elbow room to be a Maverick. If your boss doesn't, I would head for the door. Okay, that's great advice. And I think that there are a lot of people who are trapped inside organizations who really should be out on their own and probably would thrive uh, doing so. I see it all the time. Well, yes, and the key to your statement is this. The true maverick will, will leave, but the person who's not a true maverick will be afraid to leave. Yes, or they get fired in an extraordinarily emotional event, <laughs> which I see happen on sales teams as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was fired. I was the president of a consulting firm, and I was fired. And, oh, that's right. Uh, you know, you either, you, you either get very emotional and distraught, or you get angry, and I got really angry. <laughs> yeah. And I said, no moron will ever fire me again. And, and my, my maverick was allowed to come out, you know, from the closet. I came out of the closet. <laughs> you are a maverick in the closet. That's quite a good analogy. That's right. That's right. So how can um, this book, Maverick, um, help salespeople or sales leaders think differently? Well, I think, uh, you know, there are probably three or four things among many that I would point out in, in our constrained time here. One is that uh, it talks extensively about self-esteem and how to build it and how to perpetuate it and uh, how it enables someone to be a maverick. Uh, a second is that um, uh, people tend, in the book I write about easing up around the turns, uh, people ease up around the turns instead of having sort of the four-wheel drive and the balance to keep them in the turns. Uh, and I don't think life is a marathon. I think life is a series of sprints with a lot of turns in it. And mavericks have to understand that uh, you're not a maverick 24 hours a day and you're not running like crazy, you're not running 26 miles and so forth. But what you are doing is you're taking these sprints and you have to win the sprints. And the final thing I'd mention is something you've heard me talk about a lot of times, and that is uh, T-I-A-A-B-B, there is always a bigger boat. And I talk in Million Dollar Maverick about the fact that uh, being a maverick is not about having the most and the best and the biggest and the fastest. It's about being comfortable in your own skin 
so that you're not concerned about where other people are and what their standards are and what they have. You're concerned that you are screamingly happy. I love that expression, screamingly happy. There's one thing I want to pick up on here that you talked about because um, you talk about life being a series of sprints instead of a marathon, which is counter to a lot of the way corporations think. On top of that, I know you have said many times that strategic planning is an oxymoron and that you shouldn't be you know, creating five-year, 10-year, 15-year plans. Yet again, a lot of corporations and a lot of sales leaders will say, well, here's my five-year plan for the, for the marketplace. And so your book, it sounds to me like it can help them say, you know what, maybe we should just be coming up with a six-month plan or a one-year plan. I believe right now, and I, I've done a lot of strategy work in my career for organizations, I believe right now that there is no reason why an organization cannot set an excellent strategy in six hours. That's where I am with that. And given the volatility of today's world, which is going to get faster and faster and quicker and quicker and more and more volatile, uh, organizations can't afford to spend time sitting back uh, putting easel sheets on the wall and taking months to consider uh, whether the color of the boardroom should be uh, beige or ecru. Uh, the fact is that six hours is sufficient if you've got somebody who does it well. And uh, you know that I have constantly reinvented myself. Absolutely. When I do strategy now for individuals in my community, I do it in 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I've constantly reinvented myself. And if you see, if you look at organizations that are truly successful, you know, IBM has continued to reinvent itself. It's had some gaps along the way, but it's continued to reinvent itself. Apple continued to reinvent itself. Uh, and that reinvention is necessary. Now, of course, the larger and more ponderous you are, the harder it can be. But even major corporations can do this. And for individuals, it's even more important. So uh, it's important to, to continue, not just to uh, accept change. You have to create the change because uh, these sprints that I'm talking about require continual reinvention because the terrain of the sprint continues to change. I absolutely believe that this is the way sales teams need to be operating for the next few years. In fact, I told an audience a couple of days ago that I think this is the first time in 15 years that I believe that we can't make step changes anymore. We have to absolutely revolutionize the way we're running our sales organizations. And although I didn't say it, I'm now thinking they need to be mavericks. <laughs> we need to change the way we organize our structures, change the way we compensate our teams, change the way we engage with our customers in a way that's dramatically different uh, from 15 years ago. How many salespeople do you think are impacted by your, uh, your thinking and your consulting and your coaching, either directly or indirectly, every year? Oh, thousands, uh, you know, tens of thousands. And you should give every one of them my book. <laughs> Where can we get your book? by the way. You can get my book on Amazon <laughs> <laughs> or on my site, summitconsulting.com. <laughs> I think you also, though, don't have a, don't you also have a website called themilliondollarmaverick.com? <laughs> yes, milliondollarmaverick.com. It's brand new, and I have offers on there that are stupendous. In other words, you can, if you buy books in certain volume, uh, you can have dinner with me and spend a half day with me. You can um, be good. You can go free to my thought leadership program. Uh, you can spend an entire day with me for free uh, on the subject of being better at sales, better at entrepreneurial 
uh, works better at being a coach or a consultant. So there are all these different kinds of offers uh, worth up, up to $25,000 uh, just by buying some of the books and volumes. So thank you for mentioning that. Oh, hey, my pleasure. So this is what I want to tell the audience. Um, you can go to themilliondollarmaverick.com and see all of these free offers. And I have been working with um, Alan closely for five or six years now, and I can honestly say I have never seen him give away such value for free. So take advantage <laughs> of it before he changes his mind. <laughs> he has been well, able to reinvent himself on occasion. <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, the offers expire on May 24th when Maverick's officially released. So on May 24th, the offers do go away by order of Lisa Lauder. <laughs> okay. Well, so there you have it, folks. May 24th, themilliondollarmaverick.com. Take advantage of the pre-ordering, the special offers, the extra books, the free dinners. Um, I've always found that uh, the best advice from Dr. Weiss comes over dinner. So <laughs> I, will be, I will be signing up for that one myself. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan, for um, for joining us today. This has been a great interview and I think will provide a tremendous value both to people who are in corporations and going to stay there and to those who are on their own or who want to get on their own. So I appreciate you taking the time with me. Best of luck with the book. I know it will be a bestseller. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this great interview. And, and the lesson here of $2 million Mavericks on this interview is it's not work, is it? It's just fun. No, absolutely. This has been the best 45 minutes I have spent all week. <laughs> Thanks again. Okay.